This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello and welcome to the Friday episode of the Battleground Ukraine podcast with me, Patrick Bishop and Saul David. Well, once again, the main news has been away from the battlefield, notably the Kremlin's arrest of Russian ultranationalist and war criminal Igor Girkin, and a warning by Belarusian strongman Alexander Lukashenko that Yevgeny Prigozhin's Wagner group might be about to invade Poland. On the battlefield, meanwhile, Ukrainian forces continue to make marginal gains near Bakhmut and in the Zaporizhia Oblast, and also to destroy Russian military assets in occupied Crimea with drone and rocket attacks. Further afield, long-range Ukrainian drones damage buildings near the Russian Ministry of Defense in Moscow. We'll discuss the significance of all this and the fact that President Volodymyr Zelensky recently told the Aspen Security Forum that Ukrainian counteroffensive operations may soon increase in tempo. But first, let's discuss the news that Russian ultranationalist Igor Gherkin has been arrested for extremism. Patrick, what do you think is going on here? Well, frankly, um, I haven't got a clue, Saul, to be very honest. I'm not sure many people have. Um, you know, some obvious things are going on here, aren't there? I mean, Gherkin's long been very vocal critic of the MOD's conduct of the war, along with Prigozhin, of course. But the assumption's always been that Gherkin, who's a very nasty piece of work, is also a former colonel in the FSB. He's got powerful protectors. So has anything changed? Well, you know, we, we often turn to the... Uh, Washington, D.C. think tank, the Institute for the Study of War. And their assessment is that Gherkin's arrest may be, and I'm quoting, the public manifestation of a shifting balance of power among the Kremlin factions, possibly to the detriment of the Federal Security Service, the FSB, uh, in which Gherkin had served. It goes on to note that uh, the arrest might be indicative of a power struggle within the FSB and also linked to the FSB's actions during the Wagner mutiny. And uh, it writes, elements of FSB may have approved the initiation of Gherkin's criminal case because FSB leadership decided to stop protecting Gherkin as he increasingly became more adversarial towards the Kremlin. Well, I mean, there's a lot of this stuff, but, you know, frankly, it doesn't really get us very much further on. But I think if you're standing back and trying to see some pattern in all this, I think you can say that Gherkin's arrest is part of a wider crackdown by Putin on the Russian ultranationalists. And one of the next heads to roll may be Margarita Simonian, you know, this very sort of loud-mouthed head of the Russian TV channel RT, and various other mill bloggers uh, who've previously had ties with the Russian security services, and who are often, you know, they're pretty good sources of information. They're often revealing, you know, good inside stuff, which turns out to be true. So, you know, I, I think that these ultra-nationalists, whether they're kind of like Simonian is a bit of an opportunist, but there are others who are true believers. You know, they've served their purpose and they're now becoming 
uh, more of a threat uh, than an advantage. And so inevitably, their usefulness is coming to an end. And therefore, they become the focus of the negative attentions of the Kremlin. Well, as you say, Patrick, it seems that the ripples from the Wagner mutiny are still being felt to some extent, which brings us neatly on to Alexander Lukashenko's bizarre claim that Belarus is struggling to prevent the Wagner group from attacking Poland. Now, the Wagner group, as we remember from the mutiny, the deal done was that they would move, that is both Prigozhin and his remaining fighters would move to Belarus. And what would happen next, nobody knows. But Lukashenko has just made the claim during a meeting with Putin in St. Petersburg. And this is just days after Warsaw had accused Moscow of using Wagner and Minsk, that of course is the capital of Belarus, to destabilize Eastern Europe. Lukashenko responded, the Wagnerites are beginning to stretch us. I ask, why do you need to go to the West? They reply, we want to go on an excursion to Warsaw to Reshov, which of course is another town on the Ukrainian border in Poland. Now, the context of all of this is that Poland has recently moved extra soldiers to its border with Belarus, saying it was monitoring Wagner fighters since their movement to Belarus earlier this month. Putin followed this up by a warning to Poland that an attack on Belarus equates to an attack on Russia, which has made some Western analysts fear that Russia is preparing a false flag incident to justify an attack on Poland. Now, my view of this is it's just more saber-rattling. I don't think we need to be particularly concerned. It's intended to distract the Russian public from the reality, of course, of a failed war that is having and will continue to have disastrous consequences for the Russian people. And certainly both Putin and Lukashenko know that an attack on Poland, as we mentioned last week, would bring NATO into the conflict, which neither of them want. So it seems fairly clear to me. Patrick, do you have any other take on this? I think I think you just got to look at the map, haven't you, to see that this is nonsense from Wagner. You know, they've got maybe 5,000 fighters. The Poles have got 70,000 full-time soldiers. They've got up to 1,000 tanks, etc., etc. And I'm sure they'd be licking their lips at the thought of taking on Prigozhin's boys. So we can forget that. Uh, by the way, Saul, my ears did prick up at the mention of Rzezhov as I'm sure it did yours, because we're both <laughs> listeners may be interested to hear we're both due to fly there in 10 days' time with our producer James Hodgson on our way to Lviv, which is the first stop of a long overdue visit to Ukraine. But we'll tell you more about that later. Now, on the battlefield, meanwhile, Ukraine is continuing with its dual-purpose offensive. It's a slow, methodical advance, but at the same time targeting Russian military assets well behind the lines with missiles and drones. Now, they seem to be making steady progress and irreversible progress, it looks like, around Bakhmut. You mentioned that earlier, Saul. There's been some imagery uh, from the very good reporting from Ukraine website showing that the village of Klishchivika, which is just south of Bakhmut, is now more or less in Ukrainian hands. Now, this gives them a big advantage. We talked before about them gaining command of the sort of heights on the approaches to Bakhmut and giving them basically the ability to call down our, you know, artillery fire on not just the Russian positions, but the supply routes as well. So all in all, it looks like they're strengthening their grip of the town. But having said that, it's, it's interesting nonetheless that Russian forces are counterattacking regularly. They're throwing men and armor into the fight, even though the situation seems pretty unfavorable. So no real sign of a crumbling of will on this very intense sector of the front. Now, we've been going on about the counteroffensive and 
this constant sort of um, suggestion that, that the big blow is going to fall any time. And we heard some intriguing comments from Vladimir Zelensky at the Aspen Security Forum. He said that Ukrainian forces had planned to launch the counteroffensive in the spring, but they were stymied by a lack of munitions and military equipment, particularly mine clearing kit. And this in turn allowed the Russians to build up their defenses. Now, he's saying that this counteroffensive might soon increase in tempo because of, uh, of more success in, in actually clearing mines. And this um, view was backed up by the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, who uh, also said at Aspen that Ukraine will likely, quote, make a profound difference, unquote, on the battlefield as it commits all the forces that it prepared for the counter offensive. Uh, Saul, are you, are you convinced by that? Well, I mean, we need to put this in the broadest possible context, don't we, Patrick? There's been a lot of talk. Uh, Western commentators like the weather vanes that they are are now beginning to wonder whether the counteroffensive, the Ukrainian counteroffensive, that is, has failed, which is why, of course, uh, Zelensky and Blinken are making these comments. But I think it's pretty clear that the vast majority of kits that they have either got their hands on already or certainly were promised by the West, that is, of course, the Abrams, the Challengers, the Leopards, the Army cars and everything else have not been used yet. Whatever the Russians say about destroying a lot of Western kit, they've actually destroyed very little. So this stuff is ready to go. And it's just a question of timing when the Ukrainians decide to use it. If you listen to our old friend Phil from St. Andrews, uh, Phillips O'Brien, he says it's absolute madness to talk about, you know, uh, how much ground have the Ukrainians actually taken already as a measurement of whether their counteroffensive is successful or not. What you've got to look at is what they're destroying in terms of men and material. And when they feel the time is right, they will go. We keep saying this every week. So let's have a little bit of patience, shall we? Now, as for uh, what they have actually been doing, well, the longer range attacks on the 24th of July, which we mentioned at the top were, according to a Russian mill blogger, um, they'd use storm shadow missiles to blow up an ammunition depot in Vilne and a repair base in Novostepne, and they are both in occupied Crimea. So they're having an effect there. Other drone strikes hit a military airfield near Jankov, also in the Crimea, and President Zelensky, interestingly enough, followed this up with another vow to retake the whole peninsula. So no negotiation there. Now, on the same day, and this is also significant, long-range Ukrainian drones damaged the Russian Defense Ministry building in Moscow that is said to be the headquarters of the country's notorious cyber unit 26165, part of the military intelligence service known as the GRU, and also a business center in Moscow. Unusually, an unspecified Ukrainian intelligence source told CNN that Ukrainian forces had carried out this attack. Now, once again, the material damage of these attacks is negligible, but they are intended to have a propaganda effect to show Muscovites and Russians more generally that no one is safe. Some Russian mill bloggers have criticized the Russian air defenses, but perhaps mindful of what has just happened to Gherkin, their response has generally been muted. So, Patrick, can you see value in these type of long-range attacks on Moscow? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're very much, as you say, propaganda exercises, aren't they? And uh, the political effect they have is much greater than any military effect, which is pretty much nil. And it does put you in mind of the Second World War, doesn't it? You have sort of boastful force commanders Goering saying, you know, if a single bomb drops on on the rule, we've mentioned this before, then you may call me mayor. This is a kind of, kind of saying that I'm a nobody, I'm just a, 
an ordinary Joe. And of course, you know, that's exactly what happens. And, and you know, that's something that will always be remembered about Goering. And the Russians are very much prone to making these boastful remarks about how brilliant their military is and their defences are. Only last week with the Kerch Bridge, they were saying that, first of all, there were these 20 layers of defence. And then when the, they got through the first time, you know, this will never happen again. And um, bingo, uh, it does. So, yeah, I mean, this is all under part of the nibbling away of the authority of Putin. So, you know, it's it's a smart move. And it does actually make you wonder, you know, just how feeble are the air defenses about you know, places where you'd expect them to be at their strongest and um, so on and so forth. And, you know, when they do uh, do the opposite, so when they retaliate to these outrages and their views, these provocations and their views, it has a desperately bad effect on, you know, they're already pretty much completely discredited image. Look at what happened in Odessa, you know, as, as a result of the Kerch Bridge thing. They fire cruise missiles, one of them hits the cathedral, setting it on fire, injuring people, damaging it. So they killed one person, I believe, and wounded dozens of others. But this really is an own goal, isn't it, Saul? I mean, you know, the, the whole thing, the whole enterprise is about restoring historic Russia. But this cathedral was founded back in 1794 during the reign of Catherine the Great, who's one of the Russian leaders that Putin most admires. So, you know, what signal does that send? Of course, the Russians tried to absolve themselves of any blame for the attack on the cathedral, saying it was a Ukrainian air defense missile what done it, but uh, I don't think so. No, um, and I suspect they were very rapidly attempting to absolve themselves of blame because, as you say, Putin has a sort of personal connection in the sense of the, of the Catherine the Great origin of the cathedral, but also the fact that it was rebuilt in 1999 for a branch of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church that is closely linked to the Russian Patriarchate, which, of course, as we know and have mentioned many times, is a major supporter of Putin's war. So I suspect this damage was not terribly popular in the Kremlin. Now, another aspect of the Russian military's incompetence, as we again we've often mentioned, is the way it treats its soldiers. And this was brought home in stark relief this weekend when the Sunday Times published a remarkable story about a diary written by a Russian soldier on the front line and recovered by Ukrainian troops when they advanced recently in Zaporizhia Oblast. Now, it was written by a guy called Vitaly Taktashov, a 31-year-old construction worker from Moscow, which in itself is interesting because we're always told that the conscripts are coming from these outlying regions of Russia, but this is Moscow itself. And Taktashov, despite having no military experience, was conscripted in November last year and later sent to the front line. How do we know this? Because it's all in the diary. Now, the diary itself is addressed to his wife, Ekaterina, and his two-year-old son, Rusik, and it lays bare the desperate plight of half-trained Russian soldiers. As the Sunday Times notes, and I quote, over 33 pages, Taktashov details the Russian army's lack of organization and the indifference of his commanders. He considers killing himself and his comrades and makes plans to break his own leg to get sent home. He writes about how he does not want to kill anyone and of the terror of never seeing his family again and dying alone in a foreign land. Yes, and very sadly, we, we, we must never lose sight of the fact that, you know, the, we can't demonize these Russian troops en masse. These are human beings as well, with all the you know, same feelings as we've got, the same hopes and fears as we've got. But of course, his prophecy sadly came true. He never did see his family again. The diary was recovered from uh, Taktashov's body earlier this month. He was attached to the 70th 
regiment which was fighting around uh, Zaporizhia. And he notes in the diary that his boots and jacket were constantly wet. He despised the regimental commander, who he wrote was a bastard who ought to be killed like a mad dog. And the commander had actually abandoned the regiment and moved back to a safe distance uh, to headquarters. And when the Sunday Times contacted his family, they said they'd last heard from him on the 22nd of June and only the day before someone from his regiment had called to say he might have been killed. So, and there was no uh, official verification. So, you know, once again, even at this level, when someone gets killed, uh, the, the Russian military seems to be utterly incompetent and sort of you know, heartless. Okay, well, that's enough for part one. Do join us after the break when we'll be answering listeners' questions. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome back. Well, the first question comes from someone called Hortic Stud. I'm not, I'm not sure that's his real name. Uh, he asks, is this counter-offensive stalling? We referenced this a bit earlier on, but I think we can say a bit more about it. He goes on, we never hear much about Ukraine soldier casualties. Are they taking serious losses? Well, I'll, I'll just say, you no, know, it's not stalling, but it's going at a pace that the Ukrainians are dictating, not Western media. But what's becoming clear now was that when it was launched, and this is what Zelensky was saying at Aspen, uh, Ukraine was in no position to launch a decisive move that was going to split open the front. And it seems they're only now reaching that critical mass of armor and artillery of various sorts that they need to attempt such a thing. To be fair, this is what we've been saying for some time, isn't it, Saul? But it could be that the moment is soon approaching. Who knows? We, we may be there when it happens. Uh, on the casualty front, Ukrainian losses are one of the world's best-kept secrets, I would say. And there is a lot of evidence that it's beginning to hurt. Our friend Colin Freeman, who's appeared several times on the podcast, had a brilliant piece in The Spectator last week from a field hospital near Bakhmut in which he gave a very vivid impression of the scale of the casualties. And it also carried some quotes from soldiers wondering out loud whether Kiev's maximalist war aims of taking back every inch of Ukrainian soil were actually worth the terrible suffering. However, you've got to say that there was no sign that in, in Colin's view anyway, that this is translating into a slackening of will or effort for the moment at least. Okay, next question is from Duncan Larkin, and it's on the effect of the war on the American election. He asks, the closer we get to the US 2024 election, the more important it is for the outcome of the war. What efforts do you think Putin is doing to interfere in these make or break elections? How will Russia adapt from 2016 and 2020? Well, it's a good question. And we know that there's still a lot of activity on the cyber warfare front. But we also know from our inside source on the podcast that actually Russian attempts are having increasingly little effect. I mean, you go back to 2016, where they really did have a big effect on the American election and possibly a decisive effect. 
those were days when the West wasn't quite as forewarned and forearmed as it is now. The whole of NATO, of course, has come together in a defensive cybersecurity posture, and it is in on the lookout for all of this sort of Russian activity. And we know from our contacts, as I've already mentioned, that a lot of this stuff is being logged as it happens. So the possibility of the Russians having anything like the same effect on the US election, important as that would be, certainly if it gets Trump elected, we're not so sure. But as we've also speculated, Patrick, I mean, I think even a Republican victory doesn't necessarily mean doom for the Ukrainian war effort, if indeed the war is still going on in the autumn of 2024. And of course, when the president actually takes power in January the following year. What, what's your feeling about that? Yes, I think it's exactly as you say, Saul. It's uh, diminishing returns, really, isn't it? I mean, they had quite a lot of success uh, early on when uh, people weren't as prepared. But it's now got, I think, the, the, the best they can hope for really is a sort of muddying of the waters, which is their sort of basic aim is to make everything uh, doubtful, to make people suspicious of, of all information. But I think it's so kind of, you know, obvious a, a potential threat that uh, it, it's not actually going to uh, have a, a huge effect. I can't really see what they can do that is going to actually make people vote for one candidate over the other in the present circumstances. Now, this is an interesting one, Saul, isn't it? We've had a lot of, uh, we've had a lot of interest in, in the consequences of the attack on the Kerch Bridge, uh, Russian retaliation by pulling out of the grain export program and actually launching attacks on, on Odessa. And the, the questions all boil down to the same thing. One is basically how damaging is this going to be to Ukraine, i.e. the shutting down of the, of the sea route for their very important grain exports. Well, I'll start off. I'm sure you've got something to say about it, Saul. But, you know, very simply, yes, of course, it's going to hurt the Ukrainian economy badly. There's been a bit of relief on that front as the West is helping Ukraine to export the grain overland. So that's compensating a wee bit, although that's created its own problems, actually, of course, because um, European farmers and particularly Polish farmers are concerned about the effect it will have on them. But I think that the problem is more the impact that it's going to have on the world market and supplies to poor countries, especially in Africa. Now, if we cast our minds back to July 2022, Russia agreed not to destroy Ukraine's grain exporting infrastructure, given how one of the reasons they gave was how important they were being very high-minded and saying that this was because of the importance uh, that, the, that the trade had for Africa. You know, it's a big supplier of, of food to Africa. And you know, the deal was negotiated by Turkey and the UN. And it was, you know, initially it was pretty successful. But combination of things, I think long before the Kerch Bridge attack, the Russians had already decided that they were going to pull out. They've had a very good harvest this year. Some of the of the crop actually coming from you know land that, that that they're now occupying Ukrainian land, and this emboldened Putin to try and turn the screws a bit, try a new maneuver to destroy Russia's grain business. So he said basically, unless you buy Russian grain via Russian banks, you know the the, the deal is going to collapse, which will essentially means condemning thousands of people in Africa, hundreds of thousands, to hunger. 
Uh, and the demands, a long list of demands, the Russian, main Russian agricultural bank, they want that to be reconnected to the SWIFT international payment system, an end on embargo to agricultural machinery, etc., etc. Now, this tells me that despite the claims that the sanctions have actually strengthened the Russian economy, which is what Putin was saying only the other day, it clearly is hurting, isn't it, Saul? Yeah, I mean, I think two things interestingly come out of this. One, as you say, the broader effect the sanctions are having on Russia are probably far more serious than we realize. There was an interesting piece this week setting out the likely consequences for Russia. I mean, of course, we're getting a lot of our figures from Russia itself, and we know we can't rely on those. But it does seem that the embargo is beginning to bite and will have serious consequences for Russia over the next 12 months. So, it's lashing out as it tends to do. But of course, this is counterproductive because, as you say, Patrick, uh, the people who are going to suffer are the people in Africa. And those are the very people or one of the few constituencies that Russia can still rely on for some sympathy, the sort of anti-imperial role it's playing and the and the historical connections to the Soviet Union. But it will slowly but surely begin to lose the support of countries in Africa if it continues with this sort of mad anti-humanitarian policy. So, a sign, I think, of weakness, but also uh, a misguided policy in lashing out as it tries to correct that weakness. Related to that question, AGC asks, uh, should the UN be playing a greater role in creating a safe passage of grain through a coalition of nations? If it's unable to achieve this, what real relevance does the UN have? Well, as we just mentioned, the UN did actually play a role in brokering the original grain export deal. But I think the broader point you're making here, AJC, is, you know, sadly a good one. The relevance of the UN has declined in recent years. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And, you know, particularly in the role of peacekeepers, some people have said, well, has the UN got a role to play in this war? Well, I think the obvious point is that there has to be a peace uh, for them to keep in the first place. Now, looking back over their record, there have been UN peacekeeping successes in Africa, Sierra Leone and Liberia for example, but there have also been some pretty dismal failures. Think of uh, Rwanda, where they were unable to prevent a genocide in Bosnia, where in 1995 they stood by while Serbs massacred thousands of Muslim males at Srebrenica. And if you think about it, you know, the big wars of the 21st century in Iraq, Afghanistan and Syria, they didn't play any, any part in those at all. And I can't conceive at the moment of any role that they can playing in Ukraine and until the shooting has well and truly stopped. And the war also, I think, Patrick, calls into question the, the relevance of the Permanent Security Council, or, or at least Russia's place on it. I mean, it seems to me completely inimical that you can have a great power or a former great power able to veto resolutions in the UN Security Council that is actually, uh, you know, committing war aggression on the one hand and war crimes, uh, certainly by its leader and by its leaders on the other. And it would strike me that one of the very good things that could come out of this conflict would be the removal of Russia from the Permanent Security Council. But, you know, that's going to be no easy task. Of course, I mean, China will be very unwilling to allow that to happen. But maybe we need, you know, some kind of new security framework. Um, it, it's certainly worth debating. Now, I've got one for you here. So will Ukraine attack the Black Sea fleet? Asks Bucky. Will Ukraine attack or be allowed to attack the Black Sea, Russian Black Sea fleet, of course, when longer-range missiles arrive from France and the US. Well, they've already got a pretty good array of longer-range 
missiles, haven't they? So would any of them actually pose a threat uh, to the fleet in your eyes at the moment? Well, it's a good question, isn't it? Because, um, you know, they apparently used adapted missiles to attack and sink the Moskva. So uh, I think the answer to that is uh, undoubtedly, because we're not talking about a situation where uh, Russian territory is being attacked with Western weapons, or at least I don't think that's a comparable situation. We are talking about the assault on Russian military assets in a zone of war, which of course is the maritime area close to Ukraine. And I don't think there's any question that they will do that if they can. And what we've noticed, of course, is that Russia, apart from submarines, is generally keeping its warships well away from the Ukrainian coast because it knows how much danger they already pose. And of course, it's not just the material effect, as with anything in war, the moral effect is huge too. And the loss of any more uh, major warships would be, frankly, a PR disaster for Russia if it needs any more PR disasters. So the answer is yes, uh, but whether it will happen, i.e. whether the Russians will put their fleet in such a position as it can be attacked is another matter. Now, we've got a question here from Gareth B, who asks, what is the status and standard of living in Russian-controlled Ukrainian territory. Well, this is really uh, terra incognita to a large extent, isn't it, Saul? And we get a few glimpses. I mean, there are still pro-Russian Ukrainians in these Russian-captured areas who are doing their dirty work for them. And, um, well, tell the listeners about what they, they can hear in in this week's interview with Aidan Aslan, who really, uh, a large part of his suffering was at the hands of, of just these people, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, he's uh, he's very scathing about them, of course, because having fought in the Ukrainian army, a battalion of Ukrainian Marines, and Aidan Aslan, as I think uh, the listeners will know, certainly if they've listened to this week's big interview, uh, that was just the first part of the interview, Patrick, because as you will know, we were both there listening aghast to what Aidan had to tell us about uh, his time fighting the Russians in Mariupol during the siege, and of course later incarcerated by the DPR, that's the Donetsk People's Republic, a sort of Timpot pro Putin uh, regime of mixture, frankly, of Russian speaking Ukrainians, of course, but also Russians too, running the show there. And it, his description, interesting enough, just to answer specifically the question that's come from Gareth B is, you know, as he's driving into Donetsk, he's, he's blindfolded, but he's managed to sort of, you know, get a sneak a peek underneath the blindfold. You know, he's going through what is obviously a pretty devastated land into a city that looks pretty grim. You know, this, of course, is a country uh, in the midst of war. That, no, no question about that. But have things got better since the Russian speakers, the pro-Russians, took over that part of eastern Ukraine? Well, from what he was telling us, absolutely not. But far more concerning, I think, is the way these people behave. I mean, when he was initially captured, he was asked whether he wanted to be handed over to the next People Republic or kept by the Russians. And he very much said, as did all his colleagues, the latter, well, they handed him over to the DPR anyway. And the treatment by them is absolutely barbaric. So if you want to be chilled to the bone, then listen to the second part of our interview with Aiden next week. But even if you don't, even if you find those sort of details hard to stomach, I think you should listen anyway, because you will understand the sort of people we're talking about. So to sum up, the place is pretty grim because it's under war and it's under attack. It's under-resourced. It's you know in a hell of a mess. And it's full of a bunch of, frankly, people at the top, a bunch of psychopaths who need to be dealt with sooner or later. And I expect they will be. I think a lot of those guys there, certainly the ones who can be identified, including the guy 
guy who tortured and beat Aiden. He's uh, with brilliant detective work has managed to identify the guy himself. Uh, you'll hear his name if you listen to next week's big interview. And I suspect a lot of these people are dead men walking. Yes, indeed. Just to give you a heads up, all you people out there, next week we'll still be doing our recording from Blighty, but the week after that we'll be in Ukraine. We've been talking about this for a while. We finally got round to it and we'll be heading off. So uh, the week after next, both the news podcast and the interview will be coming from there. But do join us next week, first of all, on Wednesday for the second part of what Saul rightly describes as a completely gripping and horrifying interview with Aidan Aslan, and then again on Friday for the news and comment. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>